Alrighty then. All right, Drew, if you're ready, we're ready. Go. Oh, I'll take that for a yes. He was ready. Goodness, no joke. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kimberly Adams. I'm Kyle Rizal. Thank you for being with us for What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, the day in the week where we answer all y'all's questions. If you've got a question about the economy, business, or technology, you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or many other ways. We look at Twitter. <laughs> we look at Discord. I mean, if you see us on the street, maybe. No, actually not that <laughs> one. Anywho. <laughs> yeah, our first question from the day comes from Scott in Ventura, California. Hey, Make Me Smart team. Quick question on this inflation peak that people are discussing. Yep. I think people are used to prices like gas and rent um, and commodities going up and down. And yep. we're seeing some of that relief now as those prices drop. But what about all the services and other prices that have gone up in the past six months, like coffee shops or food? Mm. I guess I'm asking the $6 burrito that I now pay $8 for. Is it ever going back to six? Hmm. Maybe seven? Thanks for making us smart. Scott, 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 Scott. You want to do this one or you want me to do this one? You go ahead. Okay. So, Scott, the short answer is no, and here's why. So I'm sure you remember in this whole inflation run-up thing, as it got going, Fed Chair Jay Powell was all about transitory, right? He said, we believe these are going to be transitory price increases, and it's going to um, take care of itself over time. And then one day, as it was proving not to be transitory, David Gura, who now works at uh, another public radio outfit, but used to work here at Marketplace, um, <laughs> another public radio outfit, um, <laughs> asked Powell after one of his meetings with the other members of the Federal Open Market Committee, David said, could you define transitory for us? And I thought that was a great question because we all been sort of assuming we knew what transitory meant, which was prices are going to go up and they're going to come down. Aha, but no, that's not what Powell meant. Powell said, look, prices are going to go up and a lot of them are going to stay up. They're not going to go back to where they were. And a lot of prices right now, not the volatile stuff like commodities and energy and gas uh, and all that stuff, not the volatile ones, but the regular ones are sticky. Rent is sticky. Food is sticky. There are prices that are going to go up, have gone up, and will, if they go down at all, go down only a very little bit. So the short answer to your question is no, you're probably not going to get your $6 burrito back. You might get a $7.50 burrito. I don't know, but it's unlikely. Um, next print on the Consumer Price Index, by the way, is the 13th next uh, Tuesday. So keep your eyes out for that. Yeah, and I think just a key point to add on to, to everything you just said is that a big part of these price increases is wages and people's mm -hmm. wages going up because mm -hmm. we've had shortages in many industries and people have been demanding more money. And unless you want to go back to all those folks and say, oh, wait, you know, we want to ease inflation, we're going to decrease your salary, right. those prices aren't going right. anywhere. Right. Exactly. Uh, okay. So student loan relief, still a, a very big topic, still lots of questions of which uh, we have one. Hi, this is Yuisa calling from Illinois. And I'm calling to ask you to make me smart about student loans forgiveness. Since 1980, statistically more women have gone to college than men. And like since 2020, about 80% of all single families have been led by women. So I'm just curious as to how student loan forgiveness would help women and if it's going to help more women than men and if it's going to help single family households 
um, in this economy. Thank you. Bye. Hmm. Love all the stats, Louisa. Good yeah. job. Um, so the short answer is is yes. Uh, Biden's student loan relief is expected to have a bigger impact on women than men, pretty much for the reasons that you say. But on top of the fact that more women than men have been getting college degrees, women hold two-thirds of the country's student loan debt, not just because more of us are going to college, but also because of the gender pay gap. So once women graduate, they have that same debt that maybe a man might have when graduating, but you're going to make less. And if you're a woman of color or a person of color in general, you're probably also going to be making less than the average. And so all of that makes it then harder to pay back that debt in the same way. So women end up carrying more of that debt overall. That's from uh, the American Association of University Women, that information as well. One uh, poll quote that Marissa highlighted Women with bachelor's degrees who work full-time make, on average, 26% less than their male peers, hampering women's ability to quickly pay off debt. So then on to Luisa's second point about single-family households. In order to qualify for the student loan forgiveness, if you are a head of household, you have to earn less than 250000 dollars a year. There are a bunch of other rules the Department of Education has. So... If you're under that cap, you probably want to check with your loan servicer to make sure that you meet the requirements and to see what kind of aid you can get. Um, but, you know, if you're eligible, if you're like a single mom, you know, who's not making that much money, but you've got some college debt, you know, you're probably going to get some sort of relief. And there was a story about a woman who a single mother who paid off her loans during the pandemic but now she's actually going to get a refund under this program. And a number that we have here, 1.7 million women mm -hmm. in college are indeed single mothers. So yeah. really good question, Louisa. Yeah, great question. Seriously. And an important topic, too, and how all those Yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. On to the next question from Dale in North Carolina. He says, there's lots of talk about all us civilians switching over to electric vehicles, EVs, but what about the military? How much hmm. of the transportation fossil fuel consumed by the U.S. is civilian versus military? And I shall defer to our resident military expert. Yeah, so, so, so the short answer, <laughs> uh, Dale, is uh, – Boatloads, uh, tons, many, many metric tons. Here, here's the data. Marissa got this for us. Studies uh, out of Brown University is the root uh, source uh, for all these uh, figures. Here's the quote. If the U.S. military were a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, sitting between Peru and Portugal since 2001. The military, the Pentagon, was responsible for emitting 1.2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases. That is equivalent to, and this is the last number, annual emissions of 257 million passenger cars, which is twice the number of cars currently on the road. So, look, uh, yes, and when you think of all the activities the military does, from flying to ship propulsion to jeeps and tanks and buses and all of that stuff, it is a lot. Here's a little side note that I was not aware of until this podcast came into my life. Greenhouse gas emissions um, is really tricky when you're thinking about the military because of um, data consistency from the Pentagon. They are Look, the Pentagon can't even literally balance its own checkbook. They've failed every audit they've had since, like, I don't know, James Forrestal was the Secretary of Defense. But... 
Um, they don't provide consistent data. And also, at one point, the U.S. government petitioned to exempt the Pentagon and its climate emissions from the Kyoto Protocol, which is uh, a, a former um, uh, greenhouse gas and climate change treaty. So really tricky to do. The, the Pentagon is working on, on transitioning its ground vehicles to electric or hybrid electric, um, working with GM to make that happen. Um, Army's working on a climate strategy. So the short answer is um, the Pentagon is a huge challenge for climate change, which is really ironic because leaders in the Pentagon will tell you that climate change is a national security issue, which it is, from base flooding to competition for water to heat and refugees and climate uh, migrants. All of it is a huge national security issue of which the Pentagon is a part. So there you go. And there are also a lot of other government vehicles outside oh, of yeah. the military. Yeah. Uh, there was that whole thing about the post post office, the you U.S. Betcha. Postal Service needing yeah. all these new vehicles, and they wanted to make them EVs, and somehow that did not happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is so, a whole other thing. Kind of a mess. All right, uh, here's another. This is John from Fayetteville, Arkansas, John. and I was wondering. What's the comparison of productivity between the U.S. and a country like France? I was in France uh, 20 years ago, and there at that time, and I'm sure it's still the same, workers had so many hours to work, and when they worked all those hours, they didn't work. Deadlines didn't matter. So I'm curious to see if there's a difference in productivity between France and the U.S. Thanks. So I think we got a little bit of, you know, sort of the cultural narratives mm -hmm. about work styles mm -hmm. at play there, because I've definitely heard that, but it's not exactly true. So short answer to your question is that, yes, U.S. productivity is a little bit higher than France, according to the latest numbers from the OECD, the Organization of Economic... Oh, God, Cooperation Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Thank you. Anytime. Um, so, yes, France has the 35-hour work week, very famously, but it's not just that people can only work 35 hours and, and that's it. 35 hours is just when the overtime and paid time off kicks in. So here in the U.S. and in most workplaces, it, you know, you get your 40-hour week and after that you get overtime uh, or you get some other kind of compensation. And so in France, if you're a blue-collar worker, let's say you're working construction or something like that, you're, yes, expected to stop working after 35 hours. And But if you are a white-collar worker, say you work in an office, a BBC report from back in 2014 found that those folks generally did continue to work more than those 35 hours a week, often unpaid, uh, but 50% of those blue-collar workers did file for paid overtime. So people do still work longer than 35 hours. It's just the structure around it is similar to where the way we think of 40 hours. So that's on those numbers. But in terms of productivity in that time, you know, the OECD does keep track and they measure GDP per hour worked which is one way to measure it. Mm. And in 2019, when they looked at France, they found that productivity rates grew in the manufacturing sector but stagnated in the service industries, which brought those numbers down. I mean, a lot of that has to do with other things going, in the French, going on in the French labor market. 
um, not just the work week that might be dragging down that productivity growth rate. But yes, the U.S. is a touch more productive. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Hmm. Well, but who's happier? Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> who's anyway, happier? That's a whole, that's the title of my new podcast. All right. Uh, the final question today comes from uh, Paige. She's in Wisconsin who's wondering about the alcohol-free alcohol market. Here's what she says. It seems like it's getting bigger, both in NA beer, that is non-alcoholic beer, and zero-proof spirits. But is that just my cyber bubble learning my preferences, or is there really a growing market share? First of all, way to be aware, Paige, of your cyber bubble. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Excellent. Very nice. Very, very good. So look, it probably is a little bit of your bubble, but here's the deal. And again, credit to the producers of this podcast for digging out these stats. The market for non-alcoholic beverages has been growing steadily. Industry experts say it's going to grow by 5% by the year 2030. Any beverage that is not alcohol is what's in there, not just fake booze, blah, blah, blah. Um, Drizzly, which is which is sort of a, 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 a alcohol and, and beverage delivery service, has some stats. The NA category, non-alcoholic category, accounts for less than 1% of their sales, but it is their fastest growing category. 40% of Drizzly customers want something with a lower ABV, alcohol by volume, and Gen Z apparently is more likely to purchase non-alcoholic spirits and beers than previous generations, which I just think is fascinating. Also, non-alcoholic beers are the most popular non-alcoholic alcohol choice. I will tell you that back when when I first dabbled in non-alcoholic beers, which was a very long time ago, they were terrible. They were so bad. Now they're better. Now they're better. I had a similar experience with like non-alcoholic uh, or alcohol-removed wine when I oh, tried yeah. it like maybe five or six years ago. They were just all universally awful, yeah. at least all the ones that I tried. And there are some now that are quite good. And like especially when I'm making like a sangria or a mulled wine or something, mm -hmm. I'll often use the alcohol-removed wines because they bring that same flavor without like, you know, knocking right. people over. Right, right. Exactly. Um, and and I want to do a quick listener provided make me smart that yeah. I got on Twitter. So on Friday, I was complaining how my fancy cherries from my Manhattan got all weird in the fridge. Sure. And I was informed by one of our listeners on Twitter that they are not supposed to go in the fridge in the first place. And that is why they were messed up. So we, thank we, you very much for making me smart. We, we wind up refrigerating a lot of things in my house that do not say refrigerate after opening. And I take them out and I get yelled at. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Well, right. use this as evidence that's, to that's defend right. yourself. But I heard it on a podcast, babe. I, they said I didn't have to. All right. We're leaving now. Thanks for listening. Back tomorrow. Um, the news on a Thursday and some smiles as well. Yes. And in the meantime, keep sending your questions or your make me smiles. Our email is make me smart at marketplace.org. You can also leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera. Olivia Zhao is our intern. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletters. Today's show was kindly engineered by Drew Jostad, and Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Bridget Bodner. I don't know how kindly it was. I mean, you just kind of sat there. He was kind to me. He was oh, asking oh, about oh. my welfare and well-being before <laughs> you got on the line. Who cares about me? Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> we all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist. And 
Never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.